The HIV epidemic is not over. HIV is still here. The face of HIV is so diverse. The biggest thing to reduce HIV stigma is just to talk about it. Testing and PrEP and HIV treatment and how effective it is today. Undetectable equals untransmittable. Whether you're positive or negative, there's not a wrong door. Whether it's testing or whether it's treatment, do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforyoumc.org. Jazzcast Pros. I don't recall seeing any masses of Black people marching in the streets saying, we want the liquor store, and we want the McDonald's, and we want the Popeyes. It was designed that way. There's a larger force in place. It can't just be coincidence that Buffalo has this preponderance of liquor stores in Baltimore, too, and Gary, Indiana. And like it was designed that way. One of the key places that the African-American community must look to generate some momentum around getting to controlling our food is in the place where we already have some control and agency and resources, and that's the Black Church. And our organization is called the Black Church Food Security Network. We just work to organize and mobilize what we already have in our hand to start changing and transforming food environments in our local communities. Greetings, this is uh, Pastor George Nicholas, Chair of the Buffalo Center for Health Equity, and you are tuned in to Igniting Hope Podcast. And so our guest today, Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, creating Black food ecosystems that are anchored right within Black congregations and Black organizations. One of the things that greatly disturbed me, the fact that so many people in Buffalo and in other cities, African-American people, have issues with having access to healthy food. It's because of a lot of issues around policy. But so how do we break that cycle? Hello, this is Pastor George Nicholas, and you're tuned in to the Igniting Hope podcast. Uh, we're so glad that you've taken the time to join us. And, you know, I'm the chair of the Buffalo Center for Health Equity, and we're just coming off of our annual, our fifth annual Igniting Hope Conference. And if you want to have more information or see some of the, the speakers and things that went on at the Igniting Hope Conference, go on to our website, buffalohealthequity.org, buffalohealthequity.org. And that will uh, point you to a lot of information, some of our past podcasts, and anything that you want to, to know about our work around health equity. And if you want to reach out to us and, and figure out how you can get involved in this battle, this movement, bring health equity for all in Western New York, go on to buffalohealthequity.org. Now, if you had the opportunity to be with us for our Igniting Hope Conference, advocating in a new reality, breaking barriers, maintaining resilience, and reconstructing a community of care. One of the things that happened, just the tragic act of violence that was perpetrated against our people on May 14th, it created a sense of instability or increased this, the sense of instability of access to food because this top supermarket was one of the few venues that we had to serve our community. 
And so one of our speakers at our event, Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III, and was a pastor at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Baltimore. And from then, the Lord moved him to found the Black Church Food Security Network, which advances food security and food sovereignty by creating Black food ecosystems that are anchored right within Black congregations and Black organizations. And so I want to welcome Dr. Brown into our conversation now. And Dr. Brown, welcome. And I want you to share a little bit about your experience. You 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 came into our city and, and didn't just hang out in your hotel room, but you, you ventured out into the highways and the byways. And, and just kind of share with the folks uh, your experience, and then we'll talk a little bit about your work. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Pastor George, for allowing me to come and be a part of this conversation today. And I thank you as well for the part you played in helping me to get to Buffalo. It was my very first time there. And yeah, my my experience in Buffalo was beautiful. I mean, I, Buffalo's a beautiful place. And in many ways, it reminds me of Baltimore. That's where I am. And uh, since I came back home and shared with people that I was in Buffalo, I've heard people talk about how Buffalo and Baltimore are in many respects sister cities and very similar in their histories and the character of the city. So it felt very familiar. And as you alluded to, yeah, I decided, let me get out of this hotel room. I want to walk around. I want to see Buffalo for real. So I walked from downtown to the Tops uh, grocery store and to other places around the city of Buffalo and just was inspired, was moved deeply by what I saw. I will say I was also energized because of the great work that you all are already doing there and the ways in which that I see uh, potential collaboration points, partnership points that even take things to another whole level, just riding the momentum of what you all are already doing. And so it was a great experience. I love the fact that it was a quick flight <laughs> to Buffalo and that uh, the communities there just there was a whole lot of pride in local communities. And so what what's the community uh, fruit fruit? There's, there's the Fruit Belt and uh, Cold Springs. There's yeah. a number of, of, of communities. And each one of those communities, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes when they label the east side of Buffalo and black community, they think it's kind of monolithic. But each community, the Fruit Belt, Ken Bailey, Cold Springs, uh, Hamlin Park, all these communities have their own kind of distinct histories and distinct characters. And there was so much pride. People took I mean, from those I heard from or talked to, they take pride in their community in, in very much, uh, very similar ways to here in Baltimore. Yes, we have Baltimore pride, but also it's like, I'm from this community. I'm from that community. So it was great to see that in Buffalo. And so how do we capitalize on that sense of pride and moving that pride into empowerment, to having access to healthy food? How do we break that cycle? Right? How do we get ourselves in a position where we're, we're no longer begging systems and people and individuals and institutions that through their historical and present practice have demonstrated you know, no proclivity to care for us? So how do we care for ourselves? Sure. And I, I love how you describe the lack of control, that as uncomfortable as it can be to face this, we must face the reality that we do not have control 
or we do not have a majority stake when it comes to the ownership of our own food environment. We cannot feed ourselves. And I, I got to say, it's very uncomfortable for me to say, I mean, you, I'm looking at you're very accomplished. Uh, we both have degrees. We've spoken around the world. We we, we have in, in our community, we have millionaires and a few billionaires and CEOs of companies. We still cannot feed ourselves in mass. And I think facing that ugly truth is very important first step. So if we do not have control when it comes to our food environment, one of the things that I began to think about years ago was, okay, we don't have control when it comes to food. Where do we have control? Where do we have agency? Where do we have a greater degree of autonomy? Where have we shown the muscles to create, not only ideate, but then create and execute and manage systems and institutions? And this preacher's kid, third generation preacher's kid, I said, what's the church? The place from the earliest depictions of black people with power for me were seen at the church. That's where I saw deacons managing praise and worship, or they call it devotions back in the day. That's where I saw church mothers managing and controlling the church kitchen. And you just couldn't walk up in there if you was anybody. That was their kitchen. That's why I saw ministers and pastors set the tone and control the area and say, listen, you can't just walk through the pulpit. This area is off. I saw pictures and depictions of black people controlling things, managing things, and their authority being respected in the context of the black church. And a broader lens of that, black churches in building uh, community life centers, in building and managing daycares, in stewarding hundreds upon hundreds of acres of land, in building new facilities for worship, mega, mega buildings, multi-million dollar construction projects. So for me, from where I sit, one of the key places that the African-American community must look to generate some momentum around getting to controlling our food is in the place where we already have some control and agency and resources, and that's the Black church. So as you pointed to in our organization, it's called the Black Church Food Security Network. We just work to organize and mobilize what we already have in our hand to start changing and transforming food environments in our local communities. As I look at the Black community and Black people, there is not a deficit of resource, but I think there is a lack of understanding of how to invest and use the resource that we have. Let me give you an example. You could drive down Bailey, Fillmore, Jefferson, and you would see very prosperous and profitable hair places, places to buy sneakers, places to buy liquor. You would find just by the aroma of our community that there is a definite market for marijuana legal and illegal, right? And then you will also find several fast food restaurants. Even now, some of our Arab brothers and sisters who come and set up a store and, and what they do is they make an assessment of what are we spending our money on? Fried chicken, go back to alcohol, 
chips, stuff like that, right? And these businesses, you never see them close. They're profitable and they open up more and more of them. That indicates to me there is resources in the community that we should be able to kind of organize so that we can we can produce the food that we need to produce to feed our folks. What, what's your sense of that and your travels around the country? And that's kind of my assessment here in Buffalo. Yeah, I mean, you, you were just describing many majority African-American cities around the nation, just in those, those few minutes and those examples. Um, and I think you're right. You can come to Baltimore and see that. Liquor stores, corner stores, you can see the same thing, which lets me know there's a larger force in place. It can't just be coincidence that Buffalo has this preponderance of liquor stores in Baltimore too, and Gary, Indiana. And like, it's not coincidence that McDonald's is right across from the Popeyes in the same community where cholesterol, high blood pressure and all. Like, I don't recall seeing any masses of black people marching in the streets saying, we want the liquor store and we want the McDonald's and we want the Popeyes. It was designed that way. And when we recognize the intentionality of the design, then it helps us to see, wait a minute, we've we been bamboozled. Wait, wait, hold up. <laughs> There's something more sinister at play above our heads is going on right now. And so I think I love when and we do this here in, in some of our churches, and we're trying to encourage more churches to do it, when there are reading clubs, book clubs, study groups, to really unpack how we got here. Because I see all these liquor stores, Black people put that there. No, we didn't. We don't, we don't own none of them. And like you said, I love the way you said it, Pastor George, even in the midst of the pandemic, the liquor stores didn't stop rolling in our community. Other things shut down. That truck was still pulling up, unloading liquor in that store. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is to really create spaces to do some deep study, reflection, and analysis. We got to see not only how things got to how they are right now, but also in what ways are we complicit in sustaining the current arrangement of things in our community? And that's a difficult conversation, too. That we're helping to keep things going in this way in our community. And until we do that study and until we see where our nails have dirt under them when it comes to how things are set up. And I'll add one more. And until we start to see examples of something better and different and imagine that for ourselves, then we'll just stay on the unmerry-go-round of lamenting, lamenting the reality but not organizing in enough mass to really begin to transform it. So in the spiritual context too, and I, you triggered something in me when you said that there are things that are happening above our heads. There's a connection between disease and what we do to feed our bodies and sickness and what have you. And there has been some intentionality to have us as African-Americans not have the capacity to feed ourselves or when we do feed ourselves, we don't feed ourselves healthy things. And as you said, there are things above our head. However, that which is above our head is not at the top floor. And so I think sometimes we, in our seasons of lament, we focus our attention on what's going on above our head, but not at what's at the top. And so if we can get ourselves and redirect our energies and our focus on that which controls and the things that 
that have given us life and given us things to sustain our lives and follow that and to trust that, I think we can find our way to true peace and prosperity and good health. You know, I struggle at times because I come out of a theological understanding that's more grounded in liberation theology and the social gospel guided more by, you know, the Samuel Proctors and Howard Thurman's and, and, and Martin Luther King's and, and some of the current theologians like O'Berry Hendrickson and, you know, James Cone and all these others. But I find many of my colleagues are not being influenced by that history, but being more influenced by the current wave of prosperity preaching, which is hard. If, if you're coming out of that context, it's harder to see yourself, you know, plowing up soil and growing stuff, right? You just gonna, you just gonna manifest food on your table, which is not in the sacred text and is not part of our theological history, right? So our theological history of coming out of enslavement was grounded in the, the thing that what you're trying to do now is having our own sustainability and, and trusting in the land that God has given us, as opposed to the store that they won't give us. Does that make sense what right. I'm saying to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're making me remember what uh, Marvin McMickle, or in his book, Where Have All the Prophets Gone? In 2006, with that book, he was sounding an alarm about these very theologies that you're talking about. Walter Brueggemann, in, in his book, talks about the royal consciousness that people, when you digest the royal consciousness, then you can begin to see the world as Pharaoh sees it. And, and without even knowing it, instead of that prophetic imagination that goes beyond what is. I think the reason why our organization is called the Black Church Food Security Network, I want to focus on the Black Church side of that. It creates the runway to reach above the spiritual wickedness in high places to the divine power that's in higher than high places. And so I think that's needed also because. We need to tap into something more than just a socio-political analysis of what's going on in our food environment. Because if you just tap, tap into the social and political realm of what's happening, it can feel, you can come out feeling very intimidated. You, it can be feel very daunting when you consider that the corporate food system that we all are entangled with right now in different ways, it's a global system. It's global. So sure. You want to grow tomatoes in your backyard? Knock yourself out. That is doing nothing when it comes to the global system that black and brown people in particular around the world are being killed very softly and slowly, bite by bite and meal by meal. We need to tap into a source, in my view, into a source, a stream and a power akin to what Moses must have felt when he stood before Pharaoh to what David must have felt when he stood before Goliath, that this is the gargantuan issue that's before us. And if we don't develop, to your point, the muscles to reach even higher 
than the thing that is right over our head, keeping us in this period of bondage and season of bondage, then we won't muster up alone on our own, rather, what we need to overcome this. So I, I do like thinking about this, framing this and engaging this issue in spiritual and theological lenses and framings as well, because that is where the sustainable fuel is to organize to the degree that's sufficient to overcome what we are facing. Probably like the mass meetings, remember Pastor, the mass meetings of the civil rights movement, that before they went to the Edmund Pettus Bridge, we went to the church. We got to have, come on, we got to sing, we got to shout, we got to testify, we got to get the word, because it was something that was happening to help give us the fuel to say, all right, now we can march. Uh, so I, I like thinking about this present issue, this issue, with that same kind of lens. And so maybe, Pastor, maybe we need to have tent revivals again that center these issues around health and food, and we get sermons and we get songs. You remember how they, they would take the, uh, the spirituals and, and they would sometimes edit it just a little bit to apply it to what they were facing in their moment. Maybe our music, to your point, I mean, how many more songs are we going to have to hear about God? Bless me, 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 me. So I think that the the artists, the music of our churches and our faith, we need some new songs. We need some different, to your point, different preaching. Where's the sermons? Where faces where we're exegeting this text differently in a way that we're not taking the side of the powerful and the oppressor when we read the scriptures? Like Marley would say, you know, talking about, you know, this great God in the sky that's going to make everybody feel high. And we got to let people know that God is already at work in you. And it's just the releasing of what God has already done that activated into your own liberation, as opposed to this constant, like wanting this, this kind of epiphany experience that would just kind of just move us, as opposed to releasing that which God has already deposited in us. And then one of the things that the oppressor will teach you is that that you don't have what you need in order to be free, right? And so we come at it from a deficit model as opposed to an empowerment model. And then we're constantly begging God to do that, which he's already done with. And, and God's just waiting for us to just tap into what you, I've already given you. Already given it. You remember that song, um, I gave it over to the Lord. He worked it out. Right, right, right. You make me think, as you're talking, I'm like, yeah, we need to remix the message, yes. right? What if the message, what if the song changes to how you're going to pay your rent, organize all your money spent, organize, like, instead of this kind of like, God, you work it out. God said, listen, I've given you. Yes. Uh, in Exodus chapter four, when Moses is about to go confront Pharaoh, my one of my favorite passages, when God says to Moses, Moses has every excuse in the world as to why he can't do it. God says to Moses, what do you have in your hands? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. You're looking at my hands. I'm looking at your, or Jesus saying to the woman with the issue of blood, your faith has made you whole. Right, 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 right. Because right? you're so right. Now, here's my question to you, Pastor. Where are the, because I'm thinking about how do we, how do we program, how do we create spaces to systematize this kind of conversation within the machinery, for lack of a better word, the machinery of the church, 
So like I think about Sunday school program, VBS, summer camp, where are the Sunday school materials that, you know, thank God for our scholars in the academy, but as local pastors, we need resources and tools for the discipleship program, the Sunday school program, the senior Bible study. Where are the resources that can help cultivate this kind of theological thinking that would even position us to attack something like food insecurity and food apartheid? Have you seen? Nope. No, we got to write it. We got to write it. We got to write it. I mean, there's a reason like the Lord gave us the opportunity to get all these degrees. I got more degrees than I need, right? (laughs) So, so, So it has to be that which we desire, we have to to create. And that's why it's so important the work that you're doing and building this network. And, you know, we're going to be part of that network now here in Buffalo. And I think one of the things that we have to do, and I know this is, you know, something in my, that I've kind of come to a recent understanding is when we reach out to our brothers and sisters in leadership, we got to yeah. invest in those who kind of get it right away and grow them. Yeah. And yes. then maybe spend a little less time trying to convince some folks that just don't see the vision right away and they'll eventually see it. You know, you always have folks that will sit back and see if this is going to work. That's right. right? And then there are others that are more adventurous and say, Hey, yeah, let me, let me go, let me go on this thing. And sometimes we neglect the person that signed up enthusiastically let, let's get going. Let my, my little bit of church here with my 20 members, we, we ready to go. But we over here try to convince Bishop so-and-so yep. to get his 2,000-member church involved. And they're just not really interested in it right now, right? And we lead the, this person over here. Oh, we going to get to you. We know you You came to all the meetings. You said you wanted to do it. We going to get to you. But we got to, you know, we got to get this person over here, right? So we have to shift a little bit in terms of being committed to the committed and whatever skills that we acknowledge that we have to really get those who are willing and pour into them, not to neglecting others that maybe don't get it right away and keep the door of conversation and dialogue open to them. That's right. But, but we got to be able to get that work done. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. That's one of the things I learned um, to be honest. We first launched this organization in 2015 and even in the immediate years after that, I thought that the goal should be go to the big influential bishops and denomination <laughs> leaders. And then if you could just get them, then they'll get the rank and file locked in. That's what I thought. And I admit I was wrong. I was wrong because when I began to encounter to your comp, to your point, the storefronts with 25 members who was like, Hey, we are all in. Let's do it. The number of those churches started to add up faster than the one, the mega ministries. And they had the, you know, all of that fine, praise God for it. But it wasn't them. And in fact, to this day, we have 190 churches in the network. And most of the churches are really the average size of a congregation in the United States. So somewhere between 200, three on a high end five. That's the most, and and many 50-member, 75-member churches. And what I have learned is it's those churches that tend to have deeper connection and roots in the local community. They are less likely to be commuter churches because there's 25 of them. That's right here. And so that degree of connection to the local community is very valuable 
when you're trying to do the level, the kind of organizing that we're talking about with food and health. And so I've had to shift my own metrics. And, and like you said, the doors are always open for all. And it's never any hard feelings. I mean, I really do. God speaks to pastors to give vision and clarity on what that church needs at a particular time. So if I show up and I'm talking about food, uh, security and us gaining control and power, and it just doesn't align at that time, no harm, no foul. Praise God, pastor. I'm here whenever you're ready, because I know it's coming back around the corner because your members are sick or going to the hospital repeatedly. At some point, you'll be back to see me. Or I'll be back and I knock on your door at a time that's more aligned. So it's never any hard feelings, but you're right. But the churches that get it, who are nodding their head before I even finish the presentation. Okay, y'all, let's go. We got stuff to do. Let's move it. So, oh, Our time is uh, is a lot. I don't know how whose idea was to put two preachers on a 30-minute show. But, uh, but you know, we're going to have you back and, and we're really looking forward do we come? Do we set up a date for you to come back to Buffalo? For I think we did. I don't know. I think we did. It's not right in. Front yeah, but of we'll, me. we'll we'll get that date, and I'm going to make sure that that you know we we do a really good outreach and 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 make sure those who who kind of resonate with this idea, this message, this ministry, this mission, will have access to to you and the work that we're going to do. So I, I just really appreciate you. Love your brother, and we are at our. Place, the Buffalo Center for Health Equity and the African-American Health Equity Task Force. You know, we're not trying to build a service delivery system. We're building a movement. And that movement is motivated by love. We love our people so much that we want them to, to be healthy and whole. And so we're grateful that the Lord is making divine connections across the country. And we're going to make this thing work. God is able. And, um, you know, I just want us to be used by God to do the work that God intends for his people. So I appreciate you, brother. And um, just want to give a final word to the folks before we sign off. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Pastor George. I really appreciate this opportunity. I can't thank you enough for your leadership in the Buffalo community. I, that was very clear in the first 20 minutes of my time in Buffalo, even beyond this particular issue. And I just want to applaud you and continue to pray God send support and resource and give direction and guidance as you continue to, to, to lead. I just want to be a, a water boy to what it is you're doing, a cheerleader to y'all's efforts. So I can't wait to continue to link up. Well, you know, I, I thank you for those kind words and you read them just like I sent them to you. And, uh, <laughs> but I appreciate you brother and I love you. We're going to make history in this town and in Baltimore and yes, across sir. this country because we need to leave a legacy the Lord has showed that that's our destiny. We're going to make it happen. So this is the Igniting Hope podcast. We're so grateful that you took the time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us. Again, if you want more information about what we're talking, just go on to our, our website, buffalohealthequity.org and stay connected with us and, and look forward to, to being with you again as we roll out our next podcast. God bless you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Igniting Hope Radio Podcast. We thank you for tuning in for your weekly dose of hope. Western New York national and global listeners now have access to important content they need when they need it at home, at their desk, or on the go. 
So please go and check us out. If you're not already following us on Facebook, you can follow us on Facebook at Buffalo Health Equity. That's at Buffalo Health Equity. If you're on Twitter, follow us on Twitter at Igniting H, Igniting H. And if you're on Instagram, please go over there and follow us at Buffalo Center for Health Equity 18. That's Buffalo Center for Health Equity 18. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, be well, and don't lose the hope. can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforumc.org. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com.